Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the AllInGospel.com website. There we go. We're in Judges number one. Uh, for context, again, before we get to verse one here, when we start a new book, I want to like get context on the entire book of Judges so we know what we're reading, who we think we're reading, and that sort of thing. Uh, Judges here is the Hebrew word shafat. Uh, it is not the same leader as the judges that sit in the gates of the cities. Remember in their political system, they have these judges that kind of, or elders that sit in the gates of each area. This is not that kind of judge. A shafat is a heroic leader. Or even better, a shafoedim is somebody who puts things right. So not a courtroom judge in the Israeli justice system, the first in the history of the world. But it is the justice system, it's the heroes that step up to set things right when things have been set wrong. When a whole nation's going astray, God will raise up really interesting people to help to set things right. And that's what Judges is. It's a series of those. Um, but to set things right, something has to go wrong. And when we left off at the end of Joshua, nothing's going wrong. Under Joshua's leadership, they're doing their thing. They're conquering cities. They've taken the land. It's all good under Joshua. So in chapter one tonight, we see things go right. And then by the end of the chapter, things have gone wrong, which sets the context for the book and the story. Um, they are overlapping judges. To, so to try to get how much time the book of Judges covers, you'll see commentators that'll say 300 years and you'll see other that say 400 years. That's not an error in the Bible. The Bible does not declare like a timeline or chrono chronology because the historians in the ancient era weren't as concerned with timelines as we are. So when they tell the story of one judge that takes that was this age and did this over this many years, there's nothing that says those judges don't overlap with each other. So you might have Othniel doing something at the same time that Samson's doing something. So the timeline gets really tricky in Judges. But historically speaking, we know that it's roughly somewhere in that timeline. Um, so I'm just going to say 350 years to keep my brain straight. Um, so it's about 350 years between Joshua and the introduction of the first Israeli king or King Saul. right? So this is that period in between the time. The nation is not, as humans, we might say then the nation had no leader. But it's not the intent of God that that was the case. This was the design of God from the start. It's not that they don't have a human leader. They're supposed to have the Lord as their leader. And everything they do, they do by the spirit of God and God's will and God's direction. And a whole nation of people that just live under God's direction versus some human's direction. And this is supposedly, I think God gives humanity a chance to do it right, and then we muck it up so that we appreciate at, at some point when God takes rulership. And the closer we get to the end of our history, the more our hearts should be just desiring that, man, I just wish Jesus were in charge. And we get to start with ourselves. I just want Jesus to be in charge of my life. And we get going with that. So judges, the Lord is supposed to be in control. They have a strong start. It's going to fall apart. Judges is in the middle of a sequence of books called the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic Histories. The Deuteronomic Histories start with Deuteronomy. 
and then Joshua, where things are established and then they go right. Judges is the middle book, and then you get um, First and Second Samuel as the other books. So it's a period of histories that we were assembled by the same group of people or have the same scrolls that have been brought together and assembled because they were grouped together, they were kept together. So um, in that sense, you're going to see that Judges doesn't have an author. There's no one named. Most of Deuteronomy, we feel Moses wrote because he would have been the leader in charge. Most of Joshua, it's assumed or tradition says Joshua wrote it because he was the one in charge, right? And then that little bit was added maybe by the high priest. Judges are these accounts that are collected together like an anthology of these different people that rose up to set things right. But there's no specific author of Judges, so it's not named after any particular person. Um, or you could say it might have even been authored by multiple people but it has the same generally general format and, and, and uh, form of language throughout, but so do all the Deuteronomic books. So they have the same kind of writing between all those books. So at even some authors or some scholars will say that they were edited then and put together by the high priest to document a period of history before the Babylonian exile. And when they're all hauled off to Babylon, they're all having to rethink their whole theology. Like what just happened? We had a nation and now we don't. So how did it break down and where did it go wrong? So the account of Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges is the story of when things started to go wrong. And let's go back to where God said, here's what I want. Joshua started to do that. Things went right. And then Judges, things just started to go wrong. And it's a narrative that preps them to become absolutely idol-free for the rest of their history. When the Israelites come back from Babylon, they never go back into idol worship ever again even to this day, right? So the temptation of idol worship is erased through these trials and temptations. Just because I'm an optimist, I wanted to share that. Um, the duty that they have from Joshua, from Deuteronomy, is that they're supposed to conquer the land, and God has told them that this will take time. So the very first word of Judges is the word now, as though we're continuing right where Joshua left off, right? You see the continuity there? It goes right together. It is clear in this book that it picks up there and then that period that it picks up on is going to take us all the way into invasion, slavery, poverty, civil war. We get all that in the book of Judges. So it ab absolutely becomes a mess. Um, I like this when I'm dealing with people who get all worked up about politics and it's like, this is nowhere near as bad as the book of Judges. We're not even close. Uh, so, And it's not even as bad as Cambodia. So... Um, God has told them, he says back in Exodus 23, 29, I will not drive them out from before you in a year, lest the land become desolate. There's not enough Israelites to fill the land right now. They got to populate. And then he also says in Deuteronomy 7, 22, and the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little, and you'll be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I'm not going to do it all for you. So God has told them that, and it is their job now that they've gotten their tribal allocations. They're supposed to go in and go into these cities, and they're supposed to be Yahweh worshipers, all right? So God wants to see their hearts doing this work. This is going to be then a huge battleground. All of Judges, we get kind of spiritual warfare and combat and real warfare. It's supposed to galvanize their faith to walk with him hand in hand, even when they don't have a strong leader like Joshua or Moses. The intent of God is not a strong single leader over the nation. The intent of God is that God rules over his people individually. 
and that together, when they're all following God, they all go the same direction. And then it just works that way. So God's ideal is that he is in charge of a holy nation of priests that act like priests, Exodus 19.6. It's his invitation to the Israelites to be his chosen people. And in doing that, then, there's no room for corruption in the land in which these people live. So in Deuteronomy, there were laws that people outside your country can do whatever they please, and here's how you deal with those folks. But inside your country, it needs to stay pollution-free, right? You're not going to be breathing in idol worship and all that sort of thing. So God's withheld his judgment on a brutal, cruel group of people called the Canaanites. They've been around since Genesis 15, 16. They're not nice people. We know from archaeology, these people were absolutely, some of their religious practices were horrible, things that make your stomach turn. Um, and he's, God's been patient with them for centuries. He has warned them through the very public display with the Egyptians that we know from Exodus, the very public display with Balaam and the Amorites and the Amicalites. Uh, he has shown them through a very public display at Jericho that God can conquer people without the help of one soldier. That Israel is just coming along and cities fall, right? So God, this has gone throughout the land and we've seen that as people reacted to Joshua back in the book of Joshua. So all this is context for judges. Everyone in the area, all the ancient civilizations in this area know exactly that God is moving and is with the Israeli people. That's why they're trying to curse them with Balaam. And it's why they're coming up against them with armies before they do any attacking or any aggression. So you have this group of people that are just trying to live like the Lord's told them to live and the world's attacking these people. God has also adopted some of the Canaanites. Remember Rahab was at the beginning of Joshua and the Gibeonites were kind of towards the end of the conquest. So God bookended with two stories of Gentiles just saying, we would like to just serve Yahweh. And Israel says, welcome in. We got a spot for you. So this is a story that when you have critics of the Bible, they attack this period of Israeli history as some sort of weird, like, bloodthirsty assault. It's been none of that. And now that you've actually read through Joshua yourself, they're actually told to go make peace, right? But at this point, that's not the case. They're supposed to go into these cities. Now that these Canaanites have been warned, their major armies and kings that wanted to defy Israel have fallen. God threw meteors down on one of them. Like they've had miraculous things happen. Now these people have a choice. You can leave, and many of them have. We know from archaeology, Canaanites scattered into Turkey. They scattered up into Russia. A lot of them went, went down into Babylon. And that migration into Babylon helped Babylon's economy boom, which is going to become an issue later in the Bible. So they have gone in all directions, except Egypt. There weren't a lot of Canaanites that went down to Egypt, right? But they've gone all over the place, migrating out of this area, making room for Israel. But there are still some that are left that want to defy Israel. They don't want to convert and worship Yahweh. They want to fight this from happening. So instead of that, that's what we see in Judges. That's the challenge. That's what is supposed to be happening. So God sends Israel publicly. He has been with them with the Egyptians, the Amicalites, the Amorites, Balak, Jericho, all of that. And then this is the public will of his law. After most of those major victories, the law of God is read out. Like they actually sit down and read the word of God. But they did it publicly. Remember, they shouted it from Mount Ebal. They put it on stones and monuments where people could go and read it. So as the Israelites have moved into the land, they've brought God's law with them and they've proclaimed it everywhere they go. The people that are still left defying it are the people that don't want to live under God's law. 
Now, if we were conquered by the Canadians, not the Canaanites, <laughs> and the Canadians came in and said, this is now the law of the land, for my part, I'd be like, okay, I'll live under your law. It wouldn't have been something where I would say, no, I'm going to fight. But if you've ever seen the movie Red Dawn, it's a fantasy movie where they come in and they invade. There are people that want to fight that change in government, right? So the people that are going to be in combat here are the people that are holding to their idols, holding to their idol worship, and they don't want to give it up. So at some level, it's it, for us, we need to know that the law that's being brought in is being proclaimed very publicly. God's victories are super public. The Canaanites that are left are Canaanites that don't like laws like don't steal, don't murder. You can't lie anymore. You have to not move boundary stones, thus stealing people's territory. So these are the laws that they're in conflict with. They're, in, they're actually calling good evil, and they're fighting it. There's no more permanent debt. Remember, there's jubilee under God's law. So if you read God's law and you don't delight in it like King David, something's messed up in your head. Like, no murder? I like that law. I don't have any problem with it. And you'd think like the Gibeonites and like Rahab, you'd just say, I'll serve under that God. A God that does that is okay. Um, and... You know, I think that's interesting. Paul talks a little bit about the people that God has said, I'm done with these people, which is where the Canaanites are at. And again, for judges, as we dig into this, I, I want to make sure we understand like the biblical perspective on this situation because we are getting into warfare with this stuff. These are the people, the remnants that are left that want to fight against things like don't murder, don't kill. These are the people that are in the temples that want to take 11-year-old girls and make them into temple prostitutes, basically child trafficking. Right? These are the people that just want to sacrifice their kids after they have huge Ashtaroth orgies and they get pregnant because they're not using birth control. And that's okay because now we have a baby we can sacrifice to Moloch. This is the civilization that had grown here. And it's a civilization that God sees as not just destructive for Israel, but one that would corrupt and make the entire planet sick. And he wanted to get rid of this religion that was there. The people weren't necessarily killed. Many of the people migrated and left, but they brought their religions with them down to Babylon and up to Assyria and over to Turkey in that area. A lot of the religions of, of Baal and the Ashtaroths went into Greece and became got new Greek names and became the Greek pantheon, right? And into Rome and later became the Roman pantheon. It's this idea of you can worship whatever you want and if there isn't something, we'll make up a new God for you. And you can just do what's right in your own eyes because there's going to be a God that likes what you're doing. And then you pretty much serve in yourself. And it's a, the world's religion. Paul says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Uh, this is Romans chapter 1. Being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful, but they came futile in their thoughts and in their foolish hearts were then darkened. Professing to be wise, they were actually fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. He's making fun of the Egyptians and the Baals and those kind of gods that mix humans and animals. Therefore, God also gave them up to their uncleanness, the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves and exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the served, the creature, rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Paul had really strong feelings on this. Biblically speaking, they didn't have an issue with the Canaanites going the way of the dodo, right? They needed to disappear. So God's ultimatum. You can be adopted. You can migrate. 
But if you want to defy it, you're now facing God's people, and that's a problem. So I'm glad you like that, Susan. Uh, it's tough for them to. It's it, it's it's a tough thing for the Israelites to resist the allure of Baal and Ashtoreth worship. So I've painted them as kind of the atrocities that they are at the end game. But at the start game, just think about it. Baals were the gods of, of, of power. And Ashtoreths were the gods of fertility. So when you mix power and fertility, this is what farmers hoped for. I want a good year when I do my crops. So you'd give your donation to the Baals, so there was power, and then you'd go to the Ashtoreth orgies, and the whole idea is you'd have good crops in a prosperous year, and you could feed your kids. So for your average schmo, this kind of idol worship is really alluring. And I think that that's for me, because I remember reading this stuff as a kid, and I'm like, why would you even be tempted to worship some statue? It's not about the statue. It's about getting assurance in your life for everything you want assurance for. You don't have to trust God. You just give the right gifts to the right people and you're good. Um, so even though this, the religion had a sickness to it and it was totally power-based and top-down and would abuse and, and, and do whatever it wanted with the people it was over, it was oppressive. Even though it's oppressive, it's still a system. And cultures work like that. As long as I can predict what tomorrow will look like, I don't have to be in conflict with tomorrow. So when you have an, a complete worldview and a complete system, that becomes really tempting. And it can be something, something that you even are willing to put up with some sickness in order to get there. So do whatever you want. It's kind of inconvenient for you to not be in that situation. And God knew that if these, if these people were still promoting this nonsense, that eventually the Israelites would be sucked in by it. Because it is something that's just easier. God wants your whole life Baal just wants your money, your time, and your labor. Does that make sense? God wants your heart. Ashtaroth just wants you to have sex whenever you want to. Right? There's no honor in that, but it's easy. And it's something you can just default to. And I think there's a temptation in that that hasn't gone away today. That's why I'm kind of talking about all this before we dig in. So for in context to this, God's judgment then is on people that have chosen their own way over God's way with all public display, with full knowledge of the law. Ignorance is no excuse for the law. And the Bible paints them in black and white. And we've had a lot of like our modern literature does the same thing. Of course, for me, modern literature is Star Wars. So stormtroopers are dressed in white, but they're black-hearted non-humans almost, right? And the Bible paints the Canaanites like that. They're just endless armies of orcs. And you don't think about what orcs feel or think because they've committed themselves to evil. And they're going to attack the people that are good. And that's exactly what happens. So far throughout Joshua and most of what we've seen, the Israelites have never been on the offensive. But here, now that the land's claimed, they're going to go in and claim their territory and they're going to have conflicts. And they will have to then defend themselves, but they're also going to attack. So... Israel then becomes God's tool to push the rest of the Canaanites out of the land, city by city, hilltop by hilltop, valley by valley, grove by grove. Um, and Judges is the book where they're supposed to do this for themselves. They're supposed to get out and do it. So the first word of the chapter, now. Uh, we pick up where Joshua ends off. This is the first generation that knew Joshua and saw God's miracle. The good news is that first generation is still kicking butt for the Lord. And they do it very clearly. So it starts out in verse 1. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be the first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. 
Indeed, I've delivered the land into his hand. And then I so, and this is where I get carried away. Like I had to stop on these sentences because in the past week and a half, I've literally talked to quite a few of you that are making major life choices right now. And the idea of how do you follow the Lord and that question of how you do it. So I read through these chapters and it occurred to me about halfway through the week, like, wow, this is like, they go to the Lord, they ask a question, they get an answer. And it looks so simple, right? And then you think, I wish it was just that simple for me. And I want to break this down. I think it is this simple for you. And I think big life decisions can have that. Even though those life decisions might be ones that look foolish to the world or people you love and care about might think, what are you doing? There is kind of a process to this, and I'm going to match it with the book of Acts. But um, Joshua, when uh, Joshua's not there, so they don't have a central leader, they have to go to God just like we do today. The church is not ruled by an individual person. Jesus, or in the Greek, Yeshua, Jesus is Greek for Yeshua which is Joshua, you know? So it's the exact same name. Now that Joshua's gone, they have to make decisions for themselves. And in the church, we're in the same boat. Jesus has left us for a time, and we have to make decisions for ourselves. So how do we do that? Uh, Alyssa asked a great question last week when it said, take heed to yourselves. And then I talked about Peter saying, feed the sheep. And I wish Alyssa was here, because it hit me halfway through the week. I'm like, oh, when God says, take heed to yourselves, he's talking to a nation or tribes, groups of people. When Jesus is talking to Peter and says, feed my sheep, he's talking to an individual. That's the fine point there. So when we take heed to ourselves, we do it as a body, right? And we take heed to our own behaviors, obviously, as an individual. But when we feed the sheep, that's a personal ministry thing that Jesus was asking Peter to do. So I just thought that was cool. So they make a vow. And the people said to Joshua back in Joshua 24, 24, the Lord God we will serve and his voice will we obey. So they have vowed three times they would do what God says to do. So there must be a way to hear God's voice here. It came to pass. It says at some point after Joshua is gone, they got to get on with the work they're supposed to do. So there's a period of mourning and then it's over. It says the children of Israel. So the children of Israel are coming as a body of people to inquire of the Lord. Not an individual, but a body of people. God's going to be then their leader and he's going to show them how to do things. That says they asked the Lord. So this is decision-making 101. When it says they asked the Lord, we know from Numbers 27, 21, the process of asking the Lord something for the Israelites had to do with the Urim and the... I, I can't pronounce it either. That's why I was waiting for you all to pronounce it. Thummim? Thummimimim thing? So, and what that was was a white stone and a black stone that would be in the little pouch satchel of the high priest. You would approach the high priest ask a question of the Lord, and the high priest would pull it out. And literally, it's like rolling dice. I mean, it's like drawing straws. So I'm thinking, I don't want to be Two-Face and Batman and just flip a coin with every decision. That doesn't make sense. But when you break it down, there's a little bit more to that. In fact, I'm going to say there's six things. I say six because I know Paul writes this stuff down. Um, or if you want an acronym, you can call it FIRPA, F-I-R-P-R-A, FIRPRA, not FIRPA. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense, and I'm not that good at that sort of thing. But there's going to be six steps. One, fellowship. There's a body of believers. Two, you identify what God's will is first before you ask a question of the Lord. Three, you ask a reasoned question. I'll go back through these. Yes or no, either or, which of the 12? Then four, you pray. And then five, the Urum and the Thummim, there's, or the drawing of straws in the New Testament. There's some randomization effect. We could create randomizers and have huge like displays or wheels that spin. It doesn't matter. You have some random effect. 
And then six, you act on the result. So you don't get to go back on it. Once you go to the randomizer, you're trusting that God has enough power. If God can move the Red Sea, he can flip a coin in the air. That's a very small trust kind of miracle, right? So, but this is one of the stuff's like, you gotta be really careful with this, Sean. You have everybody flipping coins and selling their vehicles and quitting their jobs. And so there's a process to this where it's not just being flippant about what you do, pun intended. It is being very intentional about what you do and there's conditions for these. So I wanna look at the book of Acts. If you wanna put your thumb in this chapter and go back and forth, I wanna compare these first two verses with the book of Acts because I think you're going to see it's the exact, the disciples did exactly what these folks did at the beginning of Judges where everything's being done right. So this is our model of where things were still going right. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus has left them. They have to make a decision. And the decision is this. They have a, they're one disciple short of 12. They're just a card short of a full deck. And Judas has betrayed the kingdom, but he had a position that's important for the book of Revelations because there will be 12 disciples that are there. So the disciples are like, we have to fill this position and they go about a process of picking between Justice or Matthias. Do you remember this story? It's a very short story, just like the beginning of Judges, but the steps are all still there. Number one, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, Acts uh, chapter one, verse, is that just verse 15? Okay, stood up in the midst of the disciples. There's 120 of the disciples. That's not an individual flipping a coin at home to make a life decision. So don't start doing that, right? Because if you're going to do it with the Bible, if you're going to use this as a model, then do it like the Bible did it. You would, if you're in fellowship here, you'd come to this fellowship and say, I have a major life decision, right? So there's a body of people that it gets shared with, not just an individual. In our chapter, it says the children of Israel, right? In our lives, this would be like us, or if you go to a Sunday morning church, that that's kind of your fellowship, that's your fellowship, right? And if they're not doing what the word of God says, just think about whether or not you want to keep going there. Number two, identify God's will. Both of them are actually going there with something that they know God wants them to do. So in our chapter back in, in Judges, they know they're supposed to conquer the land. That is known. That's not in question. God's will is not in question. So for a lot of our life decisions, we're like, what's God's will? If you're there, you're at step two. You're not flipping coins, right? The first thing you need to do is discern what is God's will and what has God commanded us. And if that's unclear, that's why you do it in a body of believers is we can all talk about it forever and then Zach can thoughtfully give us the right answer, right? Because that's how you do things. You put a bunch of people together and you think through things together and you get wisdom in numbers, according to Proverbs. So in our, in, if you go back to Acts, it says, who replaces Judas? We need to let another take his office. And they're quoting Psalm 109.8, where it says, if there's someone that's fallen in sin or a leader that is corrupted or down, someone needs to replace them and fill that office from the fellowship. So they're taking this thing and they know that God's will is here. They've done Bible study to figure this out. They know God wants that office filled because it's an office and they treat it that way. So in, num in, in, in here, they know that they're supposed to take the land. Deuteronomy 7, Numbers 33. God's made it really clear what they're supposed to do. No question about God's will in either situation. You with me so far? That's number two. Um, <laughs> then you come to like our day-to-day -day life on that number two. What's God's will? Um, well, we know a few things. We know we're supposed to work six days. And then we're supposed to give one day to the Lord. That's a command. 
You're supposed to work six days, give one day to the Lord. If you are unemployed, the question of what job should I take is the kind of question you bring to the Lord because you know you're supposed to work. And if you, so it's not a question of should I work or should I not work? You're supposed to work. How you work or what you've done isn't necessarily spelled out in the Bible for you, sadly, right? Here's another one. Am I to stay single as I'm content in life or should I get married because I kind of want to, right? God says that's your decision. And if you can stay single, that's great and even maybe preferable according to Paul. God's word says, if you're just thinking about it all the time, get married, right? Then the question is, well, who should I marry? Well, the Bible doesn't tell you who you should marry. That's the tough part. But you're at, you're at this thing where you kind of like, you know God's will is to search your heart on that and do what you're supposed to do. Or here's another one. You are commanded to use your gifts to minister to other people in the fellowship. The question then is, okay, how do I do that and who do you want me to serve? Who's got something where they're following the Lord that I can help them follow the Lord and help them go forward with that, right? So that's just kind of this, you get these things where, oh, here's another one. I threw this in one for you, Amy. We're supposed to share the gospel with everybody. We're commanded to do that. It's not an option. We're supposed to do it. The question is, how do I do it? And Lord, how do you want me to share the gospel? Should I be doing it with my neighbors? Or should I be down at street level? Or should I be doing it over here? Or should I be just helping somebody else who does it? Like, where has God put me in the body? So those are all things where we know God's will for our life. God's word covers 99% of all decisions. But then there's that 1% of like, okay, I know what God wants, but I don't know how to do it, right? And those are really tough situations, but you can't skip number two. Go to the word of God, see what it says. If you don't know what the word of God is, maybe your job is to learn the word of God for a couple years before you make those big decisions. Number three, they've used their own brains and they've used reason. So when the, in Acts chapter 1, verse 23, they actually don't come to God saying, you know, randomly find the one person in the room. Have you ever been to like afterglow things where they do this? There's one person in the room that thinks this thing. And they're like, oh, no, come on, stop doing that. They've used their heads and they've, they've identified Justice or Matthias. They've come to God with two guys that fill the requirements of what is, is laid out for them and are, have been with the ministry. They've seen and met Jesus after the resurrection. So they're first person witnesses. They've been faithfully coming and serving for a long time, but we haven't even heard their names before because they're just faithful servants. These are great guys. And they're like down to these two great guys. And at that point, they've used their brains and they're not willing to take the next step. I know I'm kind of doing a study on the chapter one of Acts here too, but this is just such a good comparison. In our chapter back in Deuteronomy, it says, who shall be first? So they've thought through that they're going to get attack the Canaanites and do their job. They just don't know who to send first. So they've narrowed it down to this very succinct question for the Lord. And that's a good rule for us. We should get it down to a couple, either this or that. Very clear decisions, binary decisions, before we take it to the Lord for the randomization effect. God gave you a brain. He wants you to use your brain. He's given you the word of God. He wants you to use the word of God. He's given you a fellowship of believers. He wants you to use a fellowship of believers. So if you've done those three things, you get to step four, which is pray. And that's exactly what they do. In Acts chapter one, verse 24, they say, you, O Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show us which of these two you've chosen to take part in the ministry and the apostleship. In our chapter, it says, who shall be first? It's implied that they went to the Lord and approached him and the high priest would have said a prayer saying, who goes first? And they pray with that very simple question. So they've broken it down. 
And for us, I think once we've brought it to the fellowship, we've gone to the word, we've prayed about it, and we get down to that kind of binary, very discreet decision, we take that before the Lord and the body and we say, all right, I'm at a point where either choice is godly and following God's will. Like, what, do I take this job or that job? Right? Both of those God can use. Neither one's in opposition to God's will. They're both fine decisions. They're, it's kind of one of, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. It doesn't matter. So at that point, you give it over to the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to pick on this one. I think you should make the final call on this final discrete decision. So they pray about it, they take it over, and then they go to randomization. In our chapter in Acts 1.26, they cast lots, which is kind of casting dice kind of thing. If it rolls, you know, you know, one, two, or three, that's justice, and four, five, and six, that's Matthias. And they're just going to roll a dice on it, and they're trusting the Lord can affect that dice in some way, shape, or form. Um, in our chapter, they um, uh, it says, and the Lord said to Judah, that would have come from the Urim and the Thummim. They would have dr- drawn stones until they got the right stone, and, and it happened to be Judah, which is fitting the exact same order that he picked last time. So he picked Judah first for the land allotments, and he puts Judah again here, probably really confirming for them that Judah gets picked first both times. So they um, they hear God speak through that, and it's repeating this promise of support for them. Uh, we, of course, can always do randomizers. I have a super high-tech randomizer, which is a coin. So if we need to ever do this, and this would be really rare when you do this, but when you do want to trust the Lord, like we can flip a coin. But here's the other thing. Then you get to number six. You got to act on it. There's no hesitation in action after this happens. So if you're going to coin flip mode with God, it's like a vow. You can't go back on it. And I think that's why it's public, right? Because it's like, oh, now you're stuck with it. Um, I used to always test myself on this. Should I do this or that? And I'd flip the coin and one would come up and in my heart, I'd go, oh, shoot. Because I knew that's the one I was supposed to pick. And then I'd go there. And then I was thinking, why am I flipping a coin? God's given me a brain. He's given me the word of God. I knew what I should have been doing. That wouldn't be at this level of decision-making. This is a whole nation of people choosing political strategy and combat based on drawing straws. On the other hand, I think that's kind of cool. There's a whole nation of people just willing to trust the Lord, and they're going to follow the Lord's will. So I think the author starts on this because it's a way to do things. Steph and I had large discussions about this. She thinks, this is a really weird way to run a country. But I'm like, but here it is in the Bible, so do what you want to do with that. It's also biblical. But I think biblically, you have to not just go flipping coins in your individual life in a bathroom making decisions for yourself. That is not, that's taking that out of context and doing whatever you want with it. In context, these are public. They are in alignment with God's written word. They are reasoned out and thought through they are prayed over, and then they're randomized. And then they stick to the action. So immediately in our passage, Judah turns to Simeon and says, come up with me to my allotted time. I mean, immediately he's just moving forward with it. And in the book of Acts, they immediately put their person in place and they move forward with their 12th disciple. It's done. They don't argue about it. They don't quibble about it. There's no drama. We flipped a coin and it's done. I think that'd be really cool if sometimes you had, instead of all the fighting and the politics... You just flipped a coin and God told you who to go with on something. It'd be kind of a neat way to do it. But it wouldn't pass through HR, I'm thinking, at all. So uh, God has promised that he'll deliver them. I just like that in that first, in verse two, it's in the past tense. And I've pointed that out when I see it. I love how God talks in the past tense. I've already delivered those people to you. 
Like when God wills something, it's done in the past, present, and the future. Verse three, and we'll start cooking through the chapter. I know this has been a long one so far. So Judah said to Simeon, you're like, we're going to be here all night. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into my allotted territory that we might fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with them. So he makes a deal with a friend. Like, and we're using names like they're personified. But this is whole tribes of people, tens of thousands of soldiers saying, if you help me, I'll help you. What does that say about the kingdom of God? We help each other. You got your ministry. I got this thing I'm trying to do. I'll help you with yours if you help me with mine. And God's kingdom works like that. We work as we help one another. And I always tell people when they're like, I don't know what God's got for my life. I'm like, look around your fellowship and help somebody else. Because God hasn't told you what to do with your life. So find somebody else and be a servant. And it's super easy to do that. So the names of the tribal leaders are foregone. There's a personification here. The names don't matter as much. The point is Judah's asking for help. And it's a good thing for us to do the same. Um, Verse four, then Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They killed 10,000 men at Bezek. This is why I did that whole thing with intro stuff, right? Know who they're killing. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And then Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. We'll come back to that. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. That's an odd story to put in there, isn't it? So the first thing they do is they go up and do that. It says Judah went up. This is how it works. Geographically, that's accurate. They went up. They went into hill country to do this. The Lord delivered. That's how it's supposed to work. It's a smaller army against a full nation, and it's still a battle. No recorded casualties for Israel, as has happened all through the book of Joshua. God says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When you go to God and ask for what to do, and then he says, and then you do it, God takes care of it. And you can really trust that God's just going to handle it. So I want to point that out there. The Canaanites and the Perizzites are key groups. They were brought up all the way back in Genesis 13, verse 7. These are key groups of people that are apostate from God's law and God's sovereignty, and they have been for generations. So they get to be highlighted here. Uh, They are the people that when Abraham came into the land, they were occupying this spot too. So they've been here a while. Uh, they killed 10,000 men at, at Bezek. The word Bezek there means na- is Naka in the Hebrew. It means to slay or to strike or to smite into death. Um, so they 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 went they killed 10,000 men at or the the word killed there means to slay, strike, and smit to death. The word Bezek means lightning. Sorry about that. So when it says they um, they Naka lightninged, so they Naka Bezek means they struck lightning or lightning struck. Does this make sense? Now look at the name of the king, the God of lightning. So the lightning struck the God of lightning. You see the nice poetic balance there? All right. Uh, I think those things are neat. Um, There's no they here, by the way, um, in the Hebrew or in the original Bible. The actor in the sentence is God. I want to just come back and point that out here because for some reason in my version, New King James, they added the word they. Then Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites. See, the Lord is the actor in the sentence. The Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand 
and killed 10,000 men at Bezek. It doesn't actually say the Israelites killed anybody. It says God did the killing here and struck them. So it is strongly implied that they were actually, the God of lightning may have actually been struck by actual lightning sent by God in this situation. Or at least that would be a reading of the raw Hebrew in that. Um, and I just think that's, again, poetic, and we've seen God do that with Egypt too. He hit Egypt with these same plagues that they were, that were their major God pantheon. So he was hitting them with things that they thought they had control over. It says he cut off his hands and toes, or his thumbs and toes. Why would you do this? One reason why you'd cut off toes is because you cannot keep your balance as well. So you're at a severe disadvantage if you do not have your toes when you're trying to fight or in, be in combat with somebody. If you do not have opposable thumbs, you cannot hold a sword. You are unequipped to do anything because you have been maimed in such a way that you cannot do person-to-person -person combat. You still got your brain, um, but you can't. So when we see that passage in verse 7, uh, he points out the king actually recognizes this is what he did, and then they do the same to him. Imagine what kind of king would have that many people crawling around on his floor, getting scraps from his table, like these people that were his enemies, he makes them subservient before him. So when it happens to him, he just recognizes, I kind of had this coming. There's a justice in what God does with people. And if you love God and you've seen the God of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the God of Joshua, God doesn't do things idly. He's patient and, and for mercy, but when he does bring justice, it's a justice that even the people being punished understand. I think it's going to be that way at the end of time. When people are actually punished for their sins, we'll all kind of be like, yeah, I had that coming. Except for we hope Jesus, maybe we can say, thanks Jesus for covering me on that because I had it coming, right? We know that God sees everything and we know he's perfectly just. Our only hope is to not be judged and to get a pass on our sins, which is what the Bible also promises. So when we see Adonai Bezek do this and says, God has repaid me, he is bending a knee or recognizing Yahweh when it happens. And it says, even in the end, everyone will recognize, everyone knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the Lord is God. And in this punishment, he's recognizing that the God of Israel is greater than his own. They brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. At this point, Jerusalem is not the city of the temple, but again, it takes a prominent position as the first city mentioned in the book of Judges. I'm sure that when they finally, God told them Jerusalem, they read back through all this stuff and were like, yeah, God was kind of hinting at it all along. So I just see a great perfection with that. Uh, Jerusalem, by the way, in the Hebrew is the teaching of peace, Jerusalem, shalom. It's the teaching of peace. Uh, and in this case, by stopping this tyrant, they make peace. Or they teach people how to make peace is that you deal with people like the God of lightning. And you get rid of Thor from your life. Uh, and you live without him. Verse 8, now the children of Israel... Uh, the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem, the teaching of peace, and they took it. And they struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Uh, Jerusalem then is claimed and made note of here. Uh, Jerusalem, even though it's set on fire, archaeologists say there are signs when it was destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed and rebuilt. In fact, part of the hill that Jerusalem is on is because it's been an active city for 5,000 years. It's one of the oldest cities on earth. Um, and it is stockpiled with history. They're digging under it right now. And I don't know if you follow the archaeology at all, but they just dug up uh, an area where they think was around during the time of Hezekiah. 
So they're digging down in Jerusalem. They keep finding layers and coins and all the history that they keep finding is aligning with the Bible and the biblical history of Jerusalem, which is pretty cool. Um, they have not dug down to a layer where it was burned and they found signs of Canaanite settlement, but that'll be cool when they get there. Verse nine, afterwards, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. And now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirath Arba. When they put a parenthetical in the Hebrew, we have to stop and know what these words mean because they're making a point. And that's, it's not just me being a geek on this. If the Bible's making a point that a name changed, that's something where we should probably look it up and see what it means. Uh, and they killed Sheshai, Ahaman, and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kirjath Sefer. So the children of Judah are now being led by Caleb, but we know that from Joshua 13. Caleb's not even mentioned at this point. He's going to get mentioned. But at this point, it's just Judah as a tribe moving together. They went down, again, geographically accurate. Uh, they're moving from the, the mountains to the south, which is the wilderness in the south, to the lowland, which is the flat regions along the Mediterranean. So when they're doing these, this is all kind of fitting. And if there were a nice little map, you could see they basically took a tour of their new territory in these geographical directions. So basically, they went on patrol of their new land. Uh, so they add the notes with the former names. We have to do a little homework there. Hebron is, in the Hebrew, the word association or league. And remember, it was out of Hebron that a league of kings came together to fight against them. It was Kirjath Arba, the city of the four giants. Four giants. Yet how many are named in the passage? We're missing a giant here somewhere. But what we should know is on this one, we really got to go back. There were men of renown in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. And the Bible has had, at various points, indication that there's these group of people that were abnormally large, and they came from demonic origins. That's the biblical account. And that there were some of them left on the earth. Last time we got to the giant stuff, I shared with you all like the records and giganticism, and we've seen there's historical accounts of these things, and there's tombs that we've found that are abnormally large. These are not aliens from another planet, even though the History Channel likes to say that. These are archaeological records that there was a group of beings that were sentient, that lived on this earth, that were larger than humans, and they weren't quite human. That's biblical. And if that sounds like science fiction to you, that, that that's something you've got to wrestle with. I'm just going to leave it. But we're here to find out what the Bible says, and the Bible says that there were these places. So this was a city named the City of the Four Giants. The Bible says there were giants. It names four of those giants as being killed in this particular attack. So the Bible not only documents this race of giants, it also documents its eradication through history. And it keeps coming up. And when you have seen the giant and killed them, you don't have a debate with your person next to you about whether or not there's giants. You just buried three of them. So it's not a debate. So when we read the Bible, they don't give us a defense or an apologetic for giants because they were dealing with them. So to them, they would think, what idiot would ever think that there weren't giants? Because there were. And they just knew it. So these men of renown uh, are taken out. Numbers 13.22, we also see another reference to these. The sons of Anak is what they're called back then. Uh, so the, this is, these are the people that when the spies first went into Israel, they ran in and they said, there's giants in that land. And they ran out and they had to go wander the wilderness for 40 years. They're terrified of them. I wouldn't want to fight a guy that was 11 feet tall. I, I mean, if you think about it, who wants to go into combat with that? 
If the Chinese do their genetic modifications, who wants to go into battle against a super genetically modified human being? That's evil stuff. That's weird. Um, so they didn't want to do it. And God told them not be afraid, and they were, and they left, and, and they didn't get in there. But there's a remnant of them left. Deuteronomy 2, Joshua 12. Uh, here we see three more of them. These are leftovers. Uh, the names that are there is, is kind of funny. Sheshai, Akaman, and Talmai mean noble. My brother is a gift. What a horrible name to give your son. And then the last one is furrowed. It's like the firstborn was definitely given the priority in this family because the name's meanings are kind of weird. Um, but they get worse and less and less happy the further you get down the line. Um, so this is, but then it still leaves this question of where's the fourth giant? They didn't get all four. So there's still a group of giants hiding out or living in the land somewhere. And we later find out in Samuel, but I can't remember the chapter, that there's a young boy that is, there's a whole army of Israelites terrified by a giant that's left over, an Amicalite, a son of Anak, one of the giants that stills remains. And his name is Goliath. And a small shepherd boy says, I'll take that dude down, let's go. And he does. But here we got another word called Debir, which in the Hebrew means sanctuary. It was formerly Kirash Sefer, which means the city of branches, which could be a religious destination for Ashtaroth, which was generally associated with fertility and plants and everything else. So it's repeated here. This story that's coming up is back in Joshua 15 too, about Caleb and his daughter in Othniel. Here the focus, I think, is a little bit different, very slight differences, but it's being repeated because they it's on their records and they put it in both books. So what makes this a kingly tribe, Judah, is that they go first. Right. Next, we have an image of prayer. At least that's how this is interpreted. So one of the things is decision-making that we saw in the front of the book. And what we got was a narrative of how they went to the Lord, got an answer, and then did exactly what they were told, and God support them, and they did it. That's chapter one so far. But next, we get this image of what um, Spurgeon calls an image of prayer, which is another one of the great tools that we have. And if we're starting out with the nation doing it the right way, they're inquiring of the Lord, getting answers and acting. They're hearing it and they're doing it. And they're also going to have this image of prayer as the next passage in the chapter. They're doing it right. So I'm going to read the whole thing, this whole passage. Verse 12, then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirath Sefer and takes it, to him I'll give my daughter, Aksah, as a wife. Uh, which in the Hebrew doesn't mean like a shop tool. It means an anklet. Uh, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksah, as a wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? What do you wish? So she said to him, give me a blessing since you've given me the land in the south. Give me also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. It's a little more condensed than what we saw in Joshua, right? Why are they repeating it? It's almost identical, but it's important here. First, first of all, in the King James Version, there's a swear word here. I like to highlight those. Uh, it says she dismounted from her donkey. And in the King James, it says she dismounted from her donkey. Donkey? Are you in a King James? No, Thanks. Thanks, Luke. She dismounted from her ass, um, which I think it's good they maybe change that in the more current English versions. But here's the thing. The word dismounted there is sana in the Hebrew. King James was probably more accurate. This implies that she was like a princess, that she she didn't just get off her donkey. She presented herself off the donkey. 
it's very rare in the Bible. Uh, and it's not a word that only other place it's used is in Judges 4.21, where it's translated goes softly. It is to move with like with effervescence. So she lightly gets off her donkey, right? It's not just anything. Uh, the implication here is that she approached Caleb, her dad, with sweetness and gentleness. She came to her airily. Daddy, please, is the tone that would be in that Hebrew word, right? And we all know the daddies in the room know that's a tough thing to resist. So he gives her what she wants. It's an image of prayer that when we're doing things right with God and we go to God and we're with God's will doing what we want, she is able to go to her father and ask for something and her father just gives it to her. Just like they did in the beginning of the chapter. They inquired of the Lord. He said, Judah goes first. They went first. God helped deliver the land to them. And then here we get another like account of that, almost like a parable, where it comes up almost the exact same pattern. Dad, I need something. You can have it but it gives us a disposition to approach the Lord. And at the beginning of the chapter, we got a process for how to approach the Lord. Do you see what I'm reading there? I think it's beautiful. There's this idea here that we take heed to ourselves and this is how you do it. And, and you follow what you do. Keely, Caleb, by the way, when he gives his daughter something, he gives something that he owns to his daughter and he gives it freely without any strings attached. Just like a good dad gives to their kids. Right? Like, I'm going to hear about that when I get home tonight. Dad. When we as the church go to Jesus and we know God's will, his law, and we see what's clear in the word and we ask him for things, Acts 2.22, he gives us things and he does things. And it's amazing. Lord, we need a place to meet. There's Anchor Coffee and Mandy's house. Right. So Peter does the same thing when he's in that interaction uh, with Jesus and he gets through there. Um, it is more blessed for us to give than to receive. And God does the same thing. God owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he freely gives it to us. When it's within his word and within his plan, he just does it. So um, this image of prayer has a few different things. I'm just gonna kind of read through them here. Consider wisely what she needs. She needed water and she asked for water. So she's already considered what she wants. She has asked for people to pray with her, her husband, Othniel. And so she has asked for those things. She made a clear and definite request of God. Give me a blessing is what she asked for before she asked for the springs. Do you see that? Lord, just give me your blessing. And I really want the springs. But what's more important is God's blessing, which he freely gives. And then last but not least, be ready to accept a loving answer from your father. Because what if Caleb said no? Or wait. And that's where we always get into big eschatological and theological debates is I asked for something and the Lord didn't answer well, maybe you should wait. Aksaz asks her father. She asks him sweetly and eagerly. I think that's why that word was in there. She lightly gets off her ass. Um, she lightly comes before her father. She doesn't ask with a heavy hand or demands things from her. She lightly goes to her father and asks for things. Lord, I would love this. If it's not in your will, I don't want it because I want what your will has first. But if it is in your will, I really want this. This is what my heart desires. And if God's creating a new creation in you and you're asking for things that are aligned with God's will, he answers those things. It's beautiful when it happens. Most mature believers come to that moment where you get to that place with God and you just sweetly ask him for things and then he just answers and it's like, thanks God, I appreciate it. And you get those stories to tell which are fun. We ask for living water from God. 
Axa asks for springs of water that will feed and provide for her family and her, her herds and her crops. We should ask for the same thing. So let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. James 1.6. When you ask God for something, don't doubt. God's going to provide for it. He'll say yes, no, or maybe. And then you should have no doubt about it. Um, it's tough to do that as a human. We ask for things and we, it's really easy to doubt that God's going to come through on that. But it's so great when he does. So this is the first narrative in the history of Judges, is this young lady who asks her father for springs of water and he gives them to her. Really simple image. Um, Othniel's not an accident. He's going to come back in chapter three. He's the first judge. So he's the first judge that Israel goes to and sets things right. So Othniel's a hero that gets dropped in in chapter one. He'll come back. Verse 16. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of, of Palms with the children of Judah in the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt amongst the people. So a Kenite is an old people group. Abram was back there. This is Moses' uncle was a Kenite, right? This is his uncle. Um, and Moses asks them back in Genesis if they, they're in, uh, I'm sorry, in Numbers 10, he asks them if they could come, if they want to come with Israel into this journey. Um, so they are here and they're around this area. 16 is a weird little verse that just gets dropped in here, right? City of Palms would be Jericho. So they're from that part of the area. Uh, the Kenites were nomadic metal workers. Uh, Kayan, Kenai, actually means to work metal. Um, and in chapter four, they're going to come up again. So it's like chapter one setting the stage for the whole book because we're seeing introduction of these characters that'll pop back up. But other than that they pop up later, chapter 16 or verse 16 just sticks out like a sore thumb. It's just there. Um, verse 17, and when Judah went with his brother Simeon, they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah and they utterly destroyed it. Uh, and here the actor is Judah and Simeon, where before the actor was God. But here it's they're actually doing the work. So the name of the city is called Hormah, and also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. This idea of chariots of iron, it's an earthly military advantage. If you're a human standing on the ground and there is a horse charging at you with a metal iron chariot behind it, you're in trouble. So it's scary and it's real. Uh, God did not ask them to worry about those things because he has taken care of it and he would. And he's beaten chariots with the Egyptians. He beat chariots with the Amicalites. He's beat them before. But they doubt, they fear, they wonder why they can't do it. Um, and they don't trust God and they don't win. So even Judah doing everything else right, we end with Judah in verse 19 uh, and they, they failed to do what they were supposed to do, which was to trust the Lord. So you get fear working into this. They gave Hebron to Caleb and Moses and said, and then he expelled, uh, as Moses had said, then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. So those three that were, we just heard about. Um, this is almost a repeat of the other story, which is kind of why you look at those other stories and the author is trying to show us how to do it the right way. But now we're getting to, into kind of the histories moving forward, and there's some redundancy there. But the children of Bez, Benjamin, verse 21, did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell there with the children of Benjamin to this day. One sentence on the Benjaminites. We had that whole thing on Judah. whole chapter so far has been on Judah. Benjaminites get one sentence. A couple failures of Benjamin. One, Judah was already defeated by Judah and Simeon when they came through. They were good big brothers. They just took care of the city for them. 
and they handed the Benjaminites the city, and the Benjaminites just let all the, the Jebusites come right back into the city, let them walk back in. So they were given, they're actually going to be given two cities, but Benjamin's a wimpy tribe. Uh, they just fold instantly. Um, they get a one-sentence failure in, in Judges chapter 1, um, and, they were, and the city they failed to hold was one they didn't even have to fight for. It was just given to them. Do you know believers in the faith that have a lot of things easy, but they never get to be strong in their faith because they've had everything easy? If everything's handed to you, you never galvanize your faith. And it's a t- if, if, if you get whole cities handed to you spiritually, you never get to be a strong Christian. This is a real challenge, I think, and why you see so many like rebel pastors' kids, right? It happens all the time because when everything's just handed to you, it's really hard to, to make that galvanized decision to follow the Lord. It's been easy for you for a long time and you've never really had to fight your own battles or do your own thing and Benjaminites just kind of are passive and lazy about it and they fail. Uh, so they avoid conflict. So Judah falls to fear at the end. They do a lot of things right. Fellowship, working together with another tribe, praying and asking the Lord, um, doing the Lord's will. They do a ton of things right, but fear is the thing that makes them flawed. They're not perfect. With Benjamin, it's basically like they're wimps and that's their problem. They have no guts, right? Verse 22, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. Good for them. So Judah being the first major tribe of the southern kingdom with Benjamin added on as a fail blog. And then in the top, this tribe of Joseph is Manasseh and Ephraim, two tribes put together. They don't really mention Manasseh because it's split in half. So Ephraim becomes the prominent tribe in the north. Um, And they go up against Bethel and the Lord is with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. They used their heads. This is good. And the name of the city was formerly called Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, that implies that the city was closed up and somebody found like a secret passage out. So when it says coming out of the city, it implies that he snuck out of the city. He found like there's a way out and in and out of the city. So they catch him and they say to him, please show us the entrance to the city and we'll show you mercy. Kind of what they said with Rahab, remember? So using the same tactics that have been used in the past, this is good. This is what the church should be doing. If something has been successful in the past, it should be considered in the future. So he showed them an entrance to the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword and they let the men and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, which it is to this day. It's an odd thing. This guy was given a free pass to be part of Israel, but he chose to leave anyways. Again, I keep saying a lot of the Canaanites left. And here's another one that would rather leave than live under God's law. There's a lot of people that instead of living under the simple and good law of God, they'd rather just do their own thing. So this guy takes off, he rolls out, lives with the Hittites, makes a new city, calls it the same thing, constantly looking back. Um, I like in this passage with the tribe of Joseph or, or Ephraim uh, that they are shrewd. And, and it says in, in Matthew 10:16, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. We're supposed to be nice and decent and good people, but we're supposed to use our head. They didn't just go run willy-nilly at a city. And when we see strongholds in our society and in our life, we don't just go at it like idiots. We use our heads and get thoughtful and strategic about it. And they do the same thing. So uh, they enter this area and they drive them out. So they go in, they drive them out. Uh, they do. Uh, they show mercy to this guy and let him go. Um, 
And Jesus does kind of the same thing with the temple. Here's the Jesus version. Notice how Jesus uses the word of God. Jesus enters the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling the doves. And he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Matthew 21, 13. It's interesting to me is that when they go into the city and clear it out, Jesus does the same thing and he presents the word of God while he's doing it. And he runs people out. Verse 27. This is still the house of Joseph. Moreover, however, however, Manasseh, now they're speaking of that part of the house of Joseph, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land, and it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but didn't drive completely drive them out. They choose to not do what God said to do. So here we've got, and by the way, with each of these tribes, we're talking about people that are the children of Israel, the children of God. These are the believers of the world at this time. And the believers of the world are making mistakes. We should be really like wary about that as warnings of what's going on. So all these cities that are talked about are nice farmland. They're fertile. It says here that they didn't take them because they were determined. So just because the enemy's determined, they don't drive them out. And just because they are, they have an attitude of compromising, they're willing to just live side by side with these folks. So we get this image of the nation of Israel as an early church of people making different decisions in different parts of the land. They put them under tribute, which implies that they're making money off of the world instead of driving them out of their, where they're at. Uh, which would be, if you wanted to look at something like that today, you can look at churches that use the church as an opportunity to be a cash cow. And it becomes a moneymaker or a marketing scam or a scheme by which they can drive money up for the sake of God. And in this case, these children of Israel are doing the same thing with the Canaanites. They're using worldly methods in order to make money. So greed stops them in their tracks. Uh, instead of being good shepherds, they become shepherds that are happy to have corruption in amongst them and allow that corruption in a society where they are not supposed to. They don't understand that what's going on here is a spiritual war, and they're treating it as an earthly kind of situation. Nor did Ephraim, verse 29, drive the Canaanites out who dwell in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Just a one-sentence thing on Ephraim. So some of these victories they do with obedience, and on other ones, they too fall short. Um, yeah. In this chapter... There's a balance between truth and love. The love that God commands of these people is to be fair and, and generous with people that are outside the nation. And inside the nation, they're supposed to love one, one another. But love is not tolerance of sin. And it's not the same thing. They're supposed to be intolerant of people that want to live in defiance of God. And they're supposed to be tolerant of people willing to submit to God's law. So you've got this example of this guy that helps them get into the city and they give him grace and mercy and allow him to leave. Yet you've got people in the city that have locked up the city to, to, to be in conflict with Israel and those people are given the sword. So you have this kind of idea that, that truth without love can be really cruel and mean and harsh. And love without truth is just permissiveness. 
And the balance of truth and love is what God's asking his people to strike. And it's a tough place to be because it means being irresolute about some things and flexible on other things. And it requires consulting the God in each and every situation. So instead of dealing with the sin, the house of Joseph does what I'll call a buddy fail. They just make friends with sin and they become buddies. And it seems great now, but as we get further into the book, it's going to be a major problem with this. So here's the work record for nine and a half tribes. Judah has victories by, and within fellowship with Simeon. They have victories by following the Lord and helping each other. They have victories in prayer and an image of, of Caleb's daughter doing prayer. Um, and then you have the house of Joseph um, that fails by making friends with these people. And then Benjamin, who's just passive and lazy right? And back to Judah being scared of iron chariots. They're scared of the world. They're making friends with the world. They're not dealing with the world, right? And I, frankly, I'm looking at this going, this is an image of the modern church. And you look at the book of Revelation where they're going through each of the types of churches. They're kind of going through each of the types of churches through these tribes. They're telling a story. So Joseph has, they have some successes by using their brains and being shrewd and they do so in fellowship, but then greed stops them. And the buddy fail, of course. So when we look through the end of the chapter, we just get a list of the rest of the tribes. And what we get is kind of a waterfall effect. They started out doing it right, but as soon as these big tribes failed, all the little tribes failed too. And it's like that in the church. If the big churches are compromising, why would we as a little group of people stand on this issue? Why would we fight these fights when the people that have all the resources and money and people don't fight these fights? And the answer is because God told you to. But the waterfall effect is just kind of sad. I'm just going to read through it. Verse 30, Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalel. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Um, Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab, Akzib, Helba, Aphib, Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land and didn't drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. And they dwelt among the Canaanites, inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to him. So it is more often the case that Israel doesn't do battle when they should than that they went out and did, did, did battle and slaughtered people. They don't. They actually, their failure is that they don't drive people out. And they should have. And the Aborites forced the children of Dan into the mountains for they would have not allowed them to come to the valley. So you get to verse 34, and now it's even worse. Now the Israelites are getting pushed around by the Amorites. So we started the chapter, they were winning all their battles. Actually, the start of the chapter, the Lord was winning their battles, and then they started to win their own battles, and then things just degenerate into compromise, laziness, sloth, and everything falls apart. Not only do they fail, but now they have to get pushed around. Verse 35, and the Amorites were determined to dwell in... Mount Heres and Aijalon and Sha'alibim. And when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. The Amorites were so determined that they couldn't do anything about it, is what it says. This is just tough because they didn't have to do anything about it. They just needed to trust the Lord. So you got basic national responsibilities. Love your God, teach your kids, be thankful, get rid of idols, keep the law. That's what they were supposed to do at the beginning of this book if they're supposed to read in the entirety of the word of God every sabbatical year, Deuteronomy 31.9, they're supposed to have feasts, they're supposed to do sanctuary, they're supposed to have jubilee, they're supposed to build cities of refuge and mercy and have a court system. What saps their will to do this? People that don't like it. And 
that's the sad part about the book, this first chapter of, of Judges. They screw up everything God wants them to do because they simply don't want to do it. So in 106.15, Psalm 106.15, when God leaves them to their own desires, there's a leanness that comes into their heart. What Israel has at the end of chapter one is a leanness. They are not strong in, in, in the Lord at this point. They're failing. Judges then starts the book with this story of a couple successes, fellowship, prayer, brains, and a bunch of losses, fear, passivity, greed, and compromise. And, and essentially the church now or the body of Christ, the fellowship, the children of God have come into a failed state where we started, ended the last book and started the chapter with them winning all their battles. And within one generation, one group of people, the battles all start to fall. So this is just part of the deal. So welcome to Book of Judges. We now need heroes. And that's what Judges is all about. Those people that stand even when everybody around them is compromised, fearful, or not willing to stand. I love that because I get into this thing and I think, yeah, this is the kind of place I find myself in in our life. I feel like we're almost in a post-church society. And I find when I look around that most people I interact with, even other people that call themselves child of God, don't act like the child of God. And they don't live it all. They're not all for Christ, all for him, all for his glory. They're compromised. They're fearful. They're cowardly. Ever run into somebody where you're talking about Jesus and they're kind of looking around like, why are you saying Jesus so loud? Right? Because we live in a society where like, what am I supposed to be embarrassed that I follow the king of creation? The Lord of the universe? No, I'm not going to be embarrassed by that. And if you want to do what you want to do, you can. But if that makes me uncomfortable for you, then we have a, we're at an impasse because I'm going to be comfortable with that because I find love and grace and mercy and the law of God is good and holy and true and just. And he's, he's long suffering to forgive and, and waits in order to bring judgment so that none can perish. Like that's awesome. And I love that. And what's left to be offered outside of that is a lot of chaos. And that's what's going to happen in the book of Judges. So here we are. Take careful heed to the commandment which the, Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And love the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Keep his commandments and hold fast to him. And serve him with all your heart and soul. Joshua 22.5. That's what they were supposed to do. And then we see in Judges 1, they didn't do any of that. They little bit by bit just slipped away from the ideal. Here's a final hopeful thought. Uh, this doesn't all end in the failure of battle. This is just one book in a much larger historical narrative that God's painting, right? Even though we may find ourselves in a post-church society, this isn't the end of the story either. And we're not there. What we're commanded to do in our generation is take heed to ourselves and be faithful to what the Lord God's asked us to do. That's it. And it's a really simple place to be. So we can be confident in this very thing, that he that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. We can take confidence in that, as the judges are going to do. So the work of judges is far from done, uh, and the church, frankly, is far from complete. We simply get the honor of living in the generation we have with the battles that we have and the victories that we get to watch God have. What an amazing thing. All right. It is toasty warm, and I've gone long. So let's pray, and we'll wrap things up. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your holy word. We thank you, Lord, for warnings, that you give us um, passages in your word 
that are hard for us to read because they may indicate that we may have some of the same traps in front of us. Lord, help us to be doing what Joshua said to do, to keep your word, to follow you with all our heart, mind, and soul, to love you, and to trust you. Lord, help us to be like Caleb uh, as he just heard your word and he went forward and did it. Uh, We thank you for the generosity of Caleb to help out his fellow tribe, Benjamin, uh, and give them things. Lord, may we be the same generous types of people. May we give and serve, and may we do ministry with each other and in fellowship with one another. May we help each other, Lord, and be there to support one another. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that it speaks to my heart and my own temptation, Lord, to falter, fall short, be fearful, be lazy. Lord, help, give me strength to not do that and renew in me and create in me a clean heart uh, and one that pursues your holiness, Lord, not for the goal of perfection because you are perfect and I'm not, but Lord, for the goal of honoring you and to lift up your name and to glorify you, Lord, and be someone who is worthy of carrying your banner. So Lord, give me that strength, uh, create in me that heart and be with us. Lord, I pray for each person in this room Uh, And I don't know where they're at in their lives, Lord, but you do. And you know where you're working in their hearts and what you're working on. Lord, give them great boldness and courage to just serve you and to know your will. Uh, Lord, help us support one another and care for one another in our struggles and in our victories. But Lord, may we always be honest with one another. Uh, We don't have time, Lord, to pretend or to not come to you in prayer with things that need to be prayed over. So Lord, help us to just be... um, witnesses of your mercy in our lives to each other. Uh, Bless this time. Bless us as we go out this week and we go out into this world full of Canaanites. Uh, Lord, help us to have grace and mercy and and love in the face of uh, just a chaotic world that we can be in. Uh, Lord, help us to not have any fear of iron chariots, none of that. Um, Lord, the weapons of war have gotten worse, but your weapons have stayed the same uh, and that you give us your word, your truth, and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.